also mentioned yesterday. Like it or not, uh, our practice uh, exists in a sense in two worlds. There's this world that we know very well where it appears that we're somebody who doesn't like to suffer, and so we're doing things about that. And then there's another world that we experience less often, which is uh, so the world of uh, things arising, things passing, the world where practice arises effortlessly, naturally, the world where <clears throat> our conditioned patterns can also arise, but they don't appear to be personal or a problem for anyone. And so the Buddha described the path in, bo- in terms of both of these worlds, the mundane and the supermundane, as it's often translated. One statement the Buddha made, he said, and what is right view? Right view which is just another way of saying wisdom, right view, I tell you, is of two sorts. (coughs) There is right view with effluence, siding with merit, resulting in acquisition, and there is right view without effluence, transcendent, a factor on the path. So tonight I'm going to talk about not just right, not just only right view, but the whole path, the eightfold path, or the three aspects of the eightfold path, from a mundane perspective. Something that hopefully will be pretty obvious to us. And then tomorrow night, I'll talk about the path from a absolute point of view, I guess sometimes, or ultimate point of view, or the super mundane point of view. And it's useful to be able to work with both because there are moments when the mind isn't caught in self or in a in delusion and uh, it can be confusing how to be in the world so but tonight we'll talk about how to be in the world when we are confused so this uh, right view as the Buddha says is with effluence which is, I think, a really nice world word, these outflows. So it's a point of view, it's a way of viewing or understanding the world that doesn't lead to cessation, but it leads to effluence, siding with merit, resulting in acquisition. Well, because it's right view, the acquisition is something favorable, like peace or happiness or you know, good things arising for us in our lives. You know, and let's be honest, a lot of us, this is our motivation for practice. We're practicing for the effluence, for the uh, natural outflows that come with a good practice. It's like, I, Mark Nunberg, put effort into practice so that I, Mark Nunberg, will receive the benefits of my hard work, my wholesome work. So this mundane right view or mundane aspect of the path should seem really uh, common sense and uh, something we recognize in our own life, in our own practice. Just this basic sense that um, 
You know, if we want something good, if we want something good to happen, unfold in our lives, well, we just have to learn how to be skillful. So it's a basic sense of taking responsibility. And not that even we initially know how to take responsibility, but from a mundane point of view, there's a real clear sense that we are responsible. So if we want something good to unfold for us, it's just a matter of figuring out first based on the fact that we understand that we're responsible, then it's just a matter of figuring out well, how to take responsibility skillfully so that the results we're looking for actually manifest for us. Another time Buddha said this very clearly, powerfully. He said, beings, again, I think from a mundane point of view, beings are owners of their actions, the heirs of their actions, Owners, or I'm sorry, beings spring from their actions, are bound to their actions, are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, of those they shall be heirs. So we can see how this is the, uh, in a very real way, the birth of wisdom. Because before there's a mundane right view, what we have is kind of a complaining, blaming view of the world. So when things aren't working for us, we blame our parents, we blame our partners, you know, we blame something, but we locate the cause outside of us, and we're just the helpless victim of the ill effects in our life, whatever that might be. Now, mundane right view is locating the cause here. But remember, this isn't the ultimate point of view. It's really a skillful point of view. Because when we locate the cause of our discomfort, the cause of our unhappiness here in the heart, you know, right in the center of our life, well, what, what arises out of that? Like when you hear what, the, what I just read from the Buddha, that all of us here in this room are owners of our actions, heirs of our actions. We spring from our actions or bound to our actions, supported by our actions. Whatever deeds we do, good or bad, of these we shall be their heirs. We shall be the heir of our deeds. So when we hear a statement like that, or when we reflect on a statement like that, do you notice what arises for us? or what arises rather in your heart, you feel that like sense of responsibility. Well, if I'm really the heir of my actions, born out of my actions, supported by my actions, bound to my actions, maybe I'm going to pay attention to the actions that I'm bound to. You know, what am I putting in motion? What am I setting in motion for the future? So mundane right view isn't meant to be some ultimate truth. It's meant to be a skillful means in the sense of it's meant to generate a kind of vigilance. So initial right view, initial wisdom evokes vigilance, a willingness to make effort based on the assumption or the uh, belief or whatever you want to call it that the cause of everything that burdens our hearts is already here. It's here. It's not out there. 
And so this isn't this right view because it's meant to be a skillful means, a strategy, more than a stopping point. It isn't like just a place to rest. Okay, we're the owners of our actions, heirs of our actions, bound to our actions. That's just how it is. It's not meant to lead to resignation, or it's not. It doesn't really provide. Uh, any real satisfaction or happiness. What it leads us to is action. Okay, so what do I do about this? How can this information return to my advantage? I mean, it's a self-centered thing. This is, by definition, the mundane point of view. We're operating as a self that wants to be skillful in the world, a self that wants to be happy and a self that, un that has looked enough to begin to see that the relevant thing is here in the heart as opposed to blaming or complaining. So initially, a lot of what mundane right view is is just staying on top of the habit of locating the cause of our unhappiness out there. So recognizing wrong view you know, that you're to blame for my unhappiness. That's right view, you know, in a, an initial sense. It's seeing our habits of blaming, our habits of complaining, our habits of projecting, or like uh, Joko Beck talks about, the promise that's not kept. So the habit of, oh, if only blank, then I'll be happy. So we are, we're always sort of... Uh, Imagining that there's no happiness here because if only this, then I'll be happy. So we're placing suffering and the end of suffering somewhere else. In a way, it takes us off the hook. So initial right view is catching that, where we're kind of taking ourselves off the hook, saying that, well, I need this first, or I need to get rid of this first. The other thing that this initial right view, mundane view, this basic initial wisdom does is it helps us distinguish between thinking about the practice and practicing. You know, when we're thinking about the practice, and I'm sure you've noticed this on retreat, we can spend a lot of time thinking about and appreciating the teachings and the practices. But it's a real, there's a real difference between uh, the direct opening to the moment and reflecting how skillful it is to open to the moment. And we can actually get a little high, like a contact high, thinking about the practice, appreciating the practice, recognizing intellectually the goodness of the practice. It can enliven the heart, it can bring some joy up. So it's, it's easy to be confused by this. Like uh, I mentioned last night, you know, the power of devotion and the importance of devotional energy. And so this is this can uh, sort of masquerade as practicing. I mean, it's, there's nothing inherently bad about appreciating the practice and feeling some joy as we think about how wonderful this path is. 
But the whole point would be then to take the energy that comes out of that joy, that appreciation, and actually practice. And remember, practicing from the mundane point of view is this recognition that intention is everything, karma is everything. So how we're thinking now, how we're relating and thinking right now, what we say and what we do, all of these intentions, the intention to think and reflect, the the intention to speak and to act, these intentions are setting in motion what's going to come next. And these intentions are either rooted in what's wholesome or unwholesome, either rooted in self-centeredness or in wisdom, in greed and aversion and delusion, or non-greed, like generosity and renunciation and non-aversion, like kindness and goodwill and patience and non-delusion, like clarity, non-distraction. So it's either either rooted, any action, any intentional action is either, I mean, I'm making it simplistic, one or the other, it can be mixed, of course. But in any moment, we can be interested in the impulse to think and speak and act. What is that coming out of? What is it being born from? Is it wholesome or unwholesome? So if all we did for the whole retreat was over and over and over again, just recall that in kind of a visceral sense, like the relevance of how we are in the moment, how the mind is in the moment, and under what influences this mind state is under, like the influence of unwholesome roots or wholesome roots. If that's all we did, that would be a profound weekend just to reestablish this mundane right view, which is only saying again that in any moment there's active in the mind wholesome or unwholesome intentions. Not seeing this is ignorance. Seeing this is right view. Seeing that intentions matter, that they're either wholesome or unwholesome, and the kind of the uh, first step in being skillful, the first step in setting something wholesome in motion is to recognize what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. Seeing what's unwholesome is skillful. It sets something wholesome in motion. So we don't even need to have wholesome intentions in the mind. Seeing unwholesome intentions in the mind is really wholesome. It sets in motion something really good. Seeing unwholesome intentions in the future, right? If we want to see unwholesome intentions in the future, we have to see them now. If we miss seeing unwholesome intentions like greediness or lust or denial, if we miss seeing denial now, we're going to miss seeing it in the future. And therefore, we're just going to act it out blindly. And so, this is the birth of wisdom. It's really the birth of the path. And in a way, I mean, You can talk about the path being born in in a number of places, but I think it's best to talk about it in terms of wisdom, this basic wisdom, basic understanding of karma, that how we're relating, the qualities in the mind matter. 
and it's our responsibility to discern what's in the mind, what's its particular flavor, self-centered or uh, free of self-centeredness, based in greed, aversion, and delusion, free of greed, aversion, and delusion, just to contrast them in kind of more black and white. But of course, we're often not clear, but then when we're not clear, you see, it just heightens awareness, like what really is going on? Is this skillful or unskillful? It just develops a greater sensitivity, mindfulness of the mind. And it allows for sila to be born. I, I spoke about the precepts last night and the importance of uh, creating a container of safety, not just on retreat, of course, but in our lives where we feel uh, grounded and non-harming and feel supported by others who are also dedicated to not harming others, not harming self or others. But how do we do that? Well, we can't really practice morality, kind of wholesome, non-harming, without understanding the root of harming, which is the unskillfulness in the mind. It's the presence of unwholesome intentions without the recognition that they're unwholesome. I mean, where does, if you look at any unwholesome action in the world, something really big or something really subtle, you know, somebody starting a war, somebody just shutting somebody out of their heart, something really subtle, where does that negative action, how does it get born? Well, it has to be born by some unwholesome intention not being seen. Because if it's seen, if we see clearly that there's an unwholesome intention, nobody, nobody who is sane, nobody who is clear, consciously acts out an unwholesome intention. Because by definition, if we're seeing that it's unwholesome, we're seeing that it leads to suffering. So who would consciously do something that's going to lead to suffering? I mean, I know we do it all the time, but we do it somehow mistakenly, thinking that this isn't going to lead to my suffering. Or, is this going to lead to my suffering? You know, we're not clear that it's unwholesome. We're confused about it. That's why we act out unwholesome intentions. That's why we act out our lust and our des uh, kind of uh, strong desire or craving. That's why we act out our impatience and our irritation and our fear and our denial and our distractions and all of our different habits of distraction. Like when I read an article I know I don't need to read, but I read it anyway. Because somehow, somewhere in the mind is the thought that this is there's no harm in doing this. Why not? Why not, Mark? Why not just, you know, waste my time doing this? There's some sense that it's okay. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. If I really saw that it was leading nowhere, if I really saw that it's not only leading nowhere, but it's increasing the tendency in the mind to waste its time, to avoid practicing, avoid insight, I wouldn't do it. So morality is born from wisdom. Morality, from a Buddhist point of view, is not some blind devotion to precepts. You know, I follow this because I was told to follow this. This is the rule, you know. I, I like this organization, so I'm going to follow this rule. Because morality is born 
from the insight of karma that intentions matter, that our life unfolds from our actions, our intentional actions of thinking, speaking, doing things in the world. If we want to know like why this life is like this now, it's because it's being born out of everything that's come before. All of the intentions that were carried into thought, word, and action. So we contemplate the mind, this uh, guarding the mind, this vigilance, or you probably some of you remember this famous discourse the Buddha gave to his son, Rahula, who was a novice monk at the age of seven or eight, and, uh, you know, eventually became a monk, and often these stories go, became fully enlightened, too. Um, but when he was still a young novice, uh, the Buddha came to see his son, Rahula, and uh, taught him that he should reflect before he acts, he should reflect while he's acting, and he should reflect on his actions after he's acted, in exactly the way that I've been talking about. You know, is this action, is this thought, is this speech, is it going to lead to my harm or the harm of someone else? You know? Is it right now leading to my harm or the harm of someone else? In the future, will it lead to the harm for me or for someone else? So this ongoing reflection, this is really the place of uh, sila. From a mundane point of view, you know, from the point of view of Mark, having had the insight into karma, that intentions matter, then what's born is this moral vigilance. We call it hiriotapa, the Pali words, for this force of concern, this force of regret, like uh, not wanting to repeat mistakes that have been made. Concern meaning this force in the mind that knows I can make mistakes. I can do things that will cause suffering for myself and others. And it, you know, that it's like an irritant that keeps us awake, keeps us from just falling into distraction or negligence, like, mm, it doesn't matter. You know, this is sort of basic ignorance from a point of view, from a Buddhist point of view, is it just doesn't matter. You know, it's just stuff happening. You know, there's a lot of so-called wisdom that masquerades, I mean, ignorance that masquerades as wisdom, like, oh, it's just stuff happening, it doesn't matter. But, you know, as the Dalai Lama and other, I've heard many teachers say things like this, you know, it doesn't matter when you can eat feces and drink urine, <laughs> and it doesn't matter if it's that or beef stew or yogurt, you know. When your mind is really indifferent on that level, then, then it doesn't matter. But until then, it matters. It matters what we think, it matters what we say, it matters what we do because we're still in this world as an individual. This is the place we're living out of. So then when we're a human being, we need to act like a human being and become a moral human being, which means we live with this concern. Now, it's true that being concerned, knowing that I can do things that cause harm, then it's like a weight, like I mentioned before. It's an irritant in the heart. We're kind of like, 
walking around the retreat, you know, careful to, you know, not be unmindful, <laughs> you know. And it's like, my God, here I'm on retreat, I'm supposed to be relaxed. And it's like, I'm really tight, you know, I'm eating at the table and I'm, you know, I'm worried what people are going to think of me. And it can, it can sometimes manifest as a certain tightness. Now, tightness actually doesn't help. I'm sure you recognize this. It doesn't make us more mindful to be afraid of making a mistake. So there's a real art, like all of these, wisdom, sila, uh, morality, and samadhi, these three parts of the, of the path, the Eightfold Path, they're all, it's all, they're all this very refined art. So with sila, you know, when this insight is born in basic wisdom that intentions matter, there is skillful, there is unskillful, and it matters. But then this vigilance is born, this concern is born, but there's this very beautiful art of staying awake, taking responsibility, but within the principle of not harming. So we don't want any more tension than is what, than what is required to stay awake, because that would be a kind of harming. So any kind of excess critical mind, judgmental mind, um, sort of uh, excess fear, would be a kind of self-harming, right? And then within that framework of being concerned of causing harm, setting harm in motion, it would get caught. Oh, I'm hating myself, you know, by, you know, I'm, I'm uh, afraid to make a mistake. Well, that's a kind of harming. It's like uh, an excess. Just like, you, we, we can have a negligence, you know, the other way, where it doesn't matter. So it's a balance, you know, it's always this middle way between too much uh, concern and too little concern. And so this is something to play with in the practice, you know, as you work with the different forms on the retreat, like the schedule, like mindful eating, like mindful walking, sitting, returning to your anchor, if you work with the breathing, or if you work with hearing, or you work with the sensations of the body, or you're doing the compassion practice, you know, what's the right uh, attachment or the right uh, um, resolve to have with the various forms that we use in retreat? And when is it too little, and when is it too much? And to always... It's like, this is a thing about practice, we can't just go on automatic pilot, you know, where we sort of decide, okay, this is the right attitude, this is the right amount of effort, and now I don't have to think about it. Because it, the right effort, right attitude, it has to get reborn in every moment. Because every moment is different. We have to reestablish that right balance, where we're not trying too hard, nor are we too negligent. Is there a kind of striving, which is a form of violence? Is there a kind of negligence, which is a form of ignorance? You know, just we have to keep looking. And it's just what I said in terms of the birth of wisdom. We're noticing the mind, we're noticing the intentions in the mind, and whether they're wholesome or unwholesome. Whether they have the flavor of greed, aversion, delusion, 
or the flavor of non-greed, simplicity and generosity and <coughs> renunciation and non-aversion, kindness, love, compassion, <coughs> forgiveness and patience, gratitude, and non-delusion, which is clarity, fearlessness, the willingness to see things as they are. So some tension is inevitable, you know, from a mundane place in practice, there's going to be a little tension. It's like we, we've got breaks, you know, don't do that, honey, <laughs> don't go there. Oh, you don't want to pick this up. So there is a, there is a kind of irritant, a little, uh, a little tension of not wanting to make mistakes, knowing that it's possible to make mistakes. There's a couple of statements from the Dhammapada, this collection of verses from the Buddhist tradition. The protected and guarded mind leads to ease of being. Though subtle, elusive, and hard to see, one who is alert should tend to and watch over this mind. And another statement from the Buddha. We are all, we are our own protection we are indeed our own secure abiding. How could it be otherwise? So with due care, we attend to ourselves. And this is this uh, ongoing reflection. So as we go through the motions of the retreat, what we're really observing, the real anchor in a sense for our practice is intention. It's just that intentions are so subtle. And, and not, not even subtle, it's not the right word, but they're ephemeral, that we use things like the breath, we use the body, we use hearing, just to keep us in the proximity of intention, because intention arises in the moment. So if we're hearing, or feeling the breath coming in, or feeling the body sitting, or feeling the body walking, well then at least we're in the proximity, because we're in the present moment, and in the present moment, we might notice intention, more likely to notice intention, notice what's skillful or unskillful in the mind. One of the things that uh, this vigilance, this moral vigilance can lead to if we're not careful is a lot of, as I mentioned, a lot of judgment and regret. And we want to see this as an imbalance. Like when we start to think about how bad we are, how we failed, you, we want to notice how unnecessary that is. Because the point isn't how we've been in the past, the point is to be skillful in the present. It's the only thing that matters. The only reason the past matters is that it, it will inspire us to pay attention to the present moment. It will inspire us to be skillful in the present moment. Otherwise, the past has no meaning. So when you find yourself looking at the past as if it has more meaning than to remind us to pay attention to the present, then you want to see that as you're kind of missing the point in terms of sila practice and just in general this practice of being skillful it it makes absolutely no sense 
to regurgitate the past in order to suffer. When we remember the past, it should feel good, like even remembering a really unskillful action. Even though, as I remember something I did that was really stupid, there's a kind of joy because I'm recognizing that it was stupid. I'm recognizing that it was unskillful. So that recognition is enlivening. There's some real joy there in knowing that that was unskillful because it's like illuminating my life. But when I get clouded, when I get caught in the unskillfulness of it and the story of being the person who is unskillful, it's dark, it's heavy, it's a burden, and it doesn't do any good. And if we think this can masquerade as practice, lamenting, worrying about the past, regretting the past. So remember, it's all about medicine. Medicine that supports seeing the present moment and discerning the skillfulness or unskillfulness in the present moment. And so any thinking about the past needs to be in the service of that. Otherwise, we want to notice it's not helping. And really put it down. Like see it as a kind of sickness. And, uh, and do it, you know, develop skillful means for curing that sickness. And you can talk to yourself, honey, what are you doing? Who is this helping? How is this useful? You know, this is a thought now. I'm recreating the story of the past in order to suffer. Is this of any value? What, what is the jewel here? Is there any value in this? What is it? Oh yeah, don't be unskillful now. <laughs> That's the only jewel we get from the past. Don't be unskillful now, because being unskillful hurts, you know? <laughs> so then that, that sort of like wakes us up. It's like a tonic. Oh yeah, don't be unskillful now. You know, so getting identified with the story of the past, that's being unskillful. Dwelling on how bad I am is unskillful because it's creating a story and getting identified with the story in a way that contracts the heart. It doesn't wake up the mind. It doesn't illuminate uh, sort of the possibility of skillfulness. <clears throat> Maybe some of you saw um, Ajahn Punadamo, one of the teachers that comes down to Common Ground and also has been leading some TCVC retreats. He'll be leading one of the retreats this winter for the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective. And he has an article in the current flyer, the TCVC flyer, on the eight precepts. And so we talked about the five precepts yesterday, but there are three additional precepts that I find very valuable to train in, even if you may not want to take them uh, as they're sort of normally practiced at monasteries. You can still develop these other three precepts. So the sixth precept is to undertake the training to refrain from eating at the wrong times. But you can generalize this a little bit more. Undertaking the training to eat food as medicine, so not as entertainment. So when we, when we decide a time to eat, we're choosing the time as medicine because eating now would be good for the mind, would support skillfulness in life, health, stability, comfort, all in the service of insight, of learning. So that's why we eat. 
That's why we choose the time to eat that we choose. That's why we choose the amount. That's why we choose the particular attitude that we're eating with. It's all in the service of insight. If we eat too much, it doesn't support insight because the mind gets dull or the stomach gets thrown off and then that pain in the stomach causes the mind to get irritated, which makes it harder to practice. So this is a sixth precept. And you see, it comes out of, the, it's born out of this concern, like, I'm willing to renounce food as entertainment. There's nothing wrong, there's nothing inherently morally wrong by uh, seeking out pleasant eating experiences, right? You know, we could go looking for the perfect caramel apple that, that's been rolled into finely toasted pecans and, you know, whatever you're sense delight might be. Um, I saw one at Rainbow the other day. It's interesting. They find the biggest possible apples to do that with. Have you noticed? I think probably because they do it by the pound. They sell them by the pound. But um, anyway, <laughs> where was I? You know, it's so easy to, uh, to get lost in those experiences. It's like it's endless, like we have one sense delight, and then as soon as the stomach is somewhat clear, we want another sense delight. So there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but we want to see it's really limited. It's not a place for finding lasting happiness, the peace that's unconditional, because like it it's just it's a conditioned happiness. It lasts for the first half of the apple, probably, you know, and then it's sort of, it's not really there anymore. And in the end, actually, it's a little unpleasant, you know, for a lot of our sense sense treats, you know, it's we keep going beyond the point where it's actually pleasant. So given that, we get inspired to pick up some renunciation practices, like even coming on a retreat where we leave behind our friends, we leave behind our bed, we leave behind being able to choose what we're going to eat, who we're going to sit next to. It's a huge renunciation to come on a retreat like this. But we do it because we're inspired about uh, learning about the mind. And we realize by taking on uh, practices of renunciation, like I'm mentioning about food, like, you know, just being limited with the food that's being offered and maybe because of the container we're not going to eat maybe as much as we would otherwise eat you know because we'd be embarrassed well that that can be useful because it shows up desire like we get to see what we want to see we see the force of craving in the mind in a way that we wouldn't if we were eating all alone whenever we wanted whatever we wanted it would be different we wouldn't get a chance to see all of our unskillful conditioning around food that we get to see here, or all of our conditioning around wanting security, and there we are in a room with a person we don't know, and all of her stuff or his stuff, and you know, and the noises and all that, and it, it just sort of illuminates how vulnerable, how much reactivity there is. Not to judge it, but just to see that if we misunderstand it if we mis uh, misperceive all of the stuff that's coming up in the mind, in other words, if we take it personal, 
will suffer. But if we just see it without taking it personally, we learn a very profound lesson about how to be free. So the second, uh, the second of the, the other three precepts, the seventh one, is undertaking the training to refrain from entertainments and adornments. And this is something that we generally practice on retreats, even though we don't talk about it specifically so much. But, you know, people are encouraged not to spend a lot of time making themselves look pretty on retreats. Because, first of all, we're not really practicing looking at each other that much. I mean, enough to avoid hitting each other when we're walking. But otherwise, we're not really staring at each other. And we're not even looking at ourselves so much. So it doesn't really matter. And we're, we're kind of... Uh, uh, letting go of that need to be somebody who looks pretty, for example. And basically any entertainments, anything that the mind wants to absorb into, even trance states, which is one of the easy things to get caught in on retreats. It's like we just want to zone out somewhere in our meditation practice as opposed to being really awake and aware that this is how it is now. You notice that? How your mind just wants to zone out? You even notice it like you're outside, you get to the end of your walking path, and it's like you kind of want to zone out, like just into seeing. But you don't want to be aware that you're seeing. You just sort of want to, it's like we want to lose ourselves, absorb into. So we want to be on the lookout, because we'll do that with eating, we'll do that, we can get interested in the, the little saying on the tea bag, you know, that little... Some tea, tea brands, you know, they have a little wise saying or something, or we can read the ingredients in our shampoo. I mean, it's amazing what we'll get absorbed into, just uh, these little uh, entertainments, you know, even when we don't have media to normally that we normally have, we still look for it on retreats. Of course, the main way is we think and plan things we don't really need to think about and plan right now. But it's like the mind, in a way, wants some entertainment. And we can get a lot of joy, just of course, because it's entertaining. And there's nothing, and so these three precepts, there's nothing, it's not about some sort of, uh, nothing unethical about planning, or about reading you know, the tea bag, or reading the ingredients on our shampoo. There's nothing ethically wrong about that. but. It just gets in the way of the vigilance to be mindful and to continue the reflection. Is the mind greedy? Is the mind seeking happiness in something that doesn't deliver real happiness? Because we want to see that. And then the, the last of the three uh, precepts on renunciation is undertaking the training. Uh, the actual translation is something like not to sleep, or rest on high and luxurious seats or beds. But the, I think the better interpretation is undertaking the training not to take sleep as an entertainment, but to see it as medicine. So use it as medicine when we need it, and when we don't need it, really let it go. So Ajahn Punadamo says, these additional precepts have nothing whatsoever to do with ethics. There's nothing immoral about eating supper. They are renunciate precepts, 
the purpose is to foster the important spiritual quality of sense restraint. In meditation, we're trying to look within to gain understanding of the inner realm of our own mind. To be successful in this work, we need to turn around, at least for a while, the ingrained habit of seeking pleasure, interest, and knowledge outside to the gateway of the senses. On a meditation retreat, we really need to work to avoid seeking little distractions. Sense restraint is not always easy to do, but we must try if we really want to explore the inner world. We have to turn the seeking gaze of the mind's eye around and avoid as far as possible letting it wander out into the external world of the 10,000 things. The eight precepts are an excellent tool given to us by the Buddha for just that purpose. Think of them as a fast for the senses. Sense contact is a nourishment for consciousness. When we deprive it of its regular fare, it has to seek elsewhere. Nibbana cannot be perceived if one is engaged in samsara. Samsara isn't meant to be some sort of moral judgment. Samsara just means we're feeding on sense experience. The mind or the heart is identified with, attached to sense experience, trying to derive happiness through sense experience. And again, it's not immoral, it's just limited and, in a sense, spiritually exhausting, ultimately, leading us to become spiritually um, motivated to look elsewhere. The last thing I want to mention tonight in terms of this, what, we, what I'm calling tonight at least, the mundane spiritual path. So we have the birth of wisdom, which I mentioned is just understanding karma, skillfulness and unskillfulness in the mind, it matters whether the intentions in the mind are skillful or not. And then that leads to the birth of sila, or living in harmony, or not harming, because we all of a sudden are full of concern. We want to be full of care about what we're thinking, what we're saying, and what we're doing, because it matters. And so we're now an ethical being. And we're willing to play with sense restraint because we know, for example, if instead of coming here to Holy Spirit, we took a plane and decided to do our retreat at a hotel in Las Vegas, you know, it'd be a very different experience because all of the senses would be engaged and it would be everything would be so intoxicating. We wouldn't be looking at whether the intentions in the mind are skillful or not. We'd be What's the word? Googling? Doggling? You know, ogling? <laughs> you know, we'd be kind of like tongues hung out. Uh, whatever it is for us, you know, whatever you like. I mean, maybe Las Vegas isn't your place. Paris is your pet place. Or the Mall of America is your place. Or, you know, whatever it is for you. So we come to a place that isn't so interesting, that's kind of calming. You know, you can only look at the lake so much. And then it's, I mean, I'm not saying that it isn't, in the deepest sense, beautiful. But generally, good retreat centers are just ordinary. If it were too beautiful here, it would be a problem. If we had beautiful rooms, really comfortable rooms, everyone with their own balcony, where you didn't see other people on their balcony, overlooking, you know, like a glacier park, the beautiful mountains or the ocean, 
you know, it would be, we'd be so excited by this, the beautiful sense experiences. And if we had like a bowl of ripe papayas and mangoes and kind of really interesting fruit, you know, can you imagine? It would actually be really hard. And, and you know, we had interesting magazines, whatever that might be for you, whether some people The Economist, other people Atlantic Monthly or the National Review or, you know, whatever your magazine might be, they were there and we had the big flat screen TV, all the channels. It would be a kind of a hell realm for us and interesting people to talk with. <laughs> it would be, no, really, think about that. It would be a kind of a hell realm. What's interesting is how we work so hard to create that in our lives. And we would if we had enough money. We would basically do that. We would create a hell realm for ourselves where, you know, and then then what we would do is we'd go find a Buddhist retreat. <laughs> where, you know, instead of having any possible ripe fruit, you know, we'd be given oatmeal and brown sugar and, you know, soy milk. <coughs> and that's it, <laughs> you know, and some stewed prunes. And, you know, and the, the funny thing is, it's really good, <laughs> you know? We don't really need that. So this is what the Buddha means by the limitations of sense experience and how when morality is born, when we have the basic wisdom, we get excited by practicing sila by sense restraint because we're happy to begin to control this tendency to get what we want, get rid of what we don't want. So we just put up with the ordinary discomforts when we're on retreat, the pain, you know, in the body when we're sitting. Oh, heck, I'll just sit to the end of the sit. I mean, no damage is being done. Why not just stay relaxed and still to the bell rings? You know, this person you know, I'd rather, she's not my best friend, I'd rather sit, but why not just sit here? Why negotiate getting back into that corner so I'm sitting with my favorite person? Why not just sit with this other person who I don't know? You know, we just, it's like we abandon these sense desires. And there's a real freedom in that. Not always seeking out what we need. Yeah, I'm tired, but I'll, there's between 9.30 and whatever, the 5.45 when the bell rings. You know, that's a lot of time to sleep. So I'll be fine. I'm not going to die being sleepy until 9.30 or 9.45 when I can put my head down. So we can uh, really put up with the experience because we understand the value of sensory straight because we want to see all of the wholesome and unwholesome intentions. And the sense restraint really creates the proper avenue to see that. And allows for the birth of calm, or samadhi, the third part of the Eightfold Path. So we need wisdom, we need sila, or non-harming, or this kind of vigilance, the developing the power of restraint, or restra uh, refraining. And we need the power of calm, or the sort of allowing the pure mind to arise, abandoning the hindrances and allowing the pure mind, the pure heart to arise. And you'll see, like tomorrow night, I'll talk about how 
walking this mundane path, like being really uh, enlivened by the recognition that intentions matter, you know. There's skillful and unskillful forces, conditioned forces in my mind, and it matters what I water. And then uh, the power of restraint is born in me, like vigilance, like being careful. And out of that comes the, the power of calm. Like because of that vigilance, I'm able to abandon what's unwholesome more effectively. And samadhi, calm, concentration arises out of the skill of knowing how to abandon unwholesome intentions, like worry, you know? So worrying is a kind of aversion. And if I have, you know, this wisdom that knows that aversion isn't helpful, and the power, the skill of restraint, this art of restraining, I can, I know how to abandon, I know how to prevent this worrying from arising. And if I'm really good at that, samadhi will arise. Concentration, this beautiful, enlivened, bright, calm mind will arise. We call this, it's a kind of joy in Buddhism. The Buddha says, freeing themselves from longing unhindered by habitual grasping, those who align themselves with the way delight in non-attachment and while still in the world are radiant. He's talking about samadhi, the radiance of samadhi. When our mind is calm and unhindered by the unskillful intentions, because for that period of time, we've got a lot of skill at recognizing what's unwholesome and a lot of skill at abandoning it and preventing it from getting established in the mind because of the vigilance, because of the skill that has been developed through restraining and seeing clearly, then the mind becomes radiant and pure. And of course, this is a really perfect mind, beautiful mind, to have deeper insight. So the wisdom goes from mundane wisdom, which is, I'm responsible for what's going on in my mind. If I want to be happy, I've got to pay attention. That's mundane wisdom, to super mundane wisdom, which I'll talk about tomorrow night, which is understanding all of this awareness of what's skillful and unskillful. It's all happening on its own. That I don't have to be the person who's vigilant. I don't have to be the person who's noticing what's skillful and unskillful. I don't have to be the wise person. So the sense of self starts to get teased out. The path is still happening, but there isn't anybody walking the path. There isn't anybody who has to do it. So Mark, with the world, you know, being a good Buddhist practitioner, I don't have to carry that on my shoulders. It can be abandoned. And the path is seen as a natural process. It has its own momentum, its own legs. It's doing its own work. And now the practice is nothing more than trusting, trusting the path. Trusting wisdom, sila, samadhi. It's got, it has its own sort of feedback mechanism now. It's doing its own work. And basically, the practice is trusting in order to avoid taking ownership of the path, which gums it up. But initially, we need ownership of the path. We need to be the person 
who has the insight that intentions matter. We are the person who wants to restrain ourselves from acting out, from getting identified with the anger in the mind or the irritation in the mind or the lust in the mind. And the one who takes responsibility for developing skill and abandoning it, putting it down. And the one who develops skill and calm in developing that radiant, pure mind, heart. But, if, but then later, as the practice develops, that sense of ownership is too dense, too gross. It gets in the way of the practice developing further. And so then we just have to trust that it, it will take, on, take off on its own. It doesn't mean it will always be wonderful, but we just trust that wisdom is an impersonal force in the mind. Sila is an impersonal force in the mind. Calm is an impersonal force in the mind. It has its own integrity, its own feedback mechanism if we get out of the way, if we tease out self-centeredness and just trust. But if we go there initially, like just want to trust, basically we're just trusting being ignorant. <laughs> accepting being ignorant. You know, we don't want to trust that. We can't practice this path of trust until we see that something is actually trustworthy. Then we can do that part of the practice. So I'll leave it here. I'll come back tomorrow and I'll pick up on calm, mundane calm leading into wisdom, super mundane wisdom, and then just kind of walk through the path again as it becomes more natural and more effortless, less personal. Well, let's, before we do our walking, we'll just take a minute, let go of the words, appreciate these practical teachings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.